0: This is Kim Nicolaitis with Advent Christian Voices here in Honolulu on the 9th of April, Monday. And uh, wherever you are, uh, greetings and welcome, and um, thank you for joining us. I've uh, just finished a series on the uh, book of Ephesians, and I'm jumping right into uh, the Gospel of Luke because I've really never done an exposition through that entire gospel before, and, I, and uh, I've always wanted to do that. So I'm going to begin a series of sermons on the gospel, and uh, which may take us hopefully through the entire gospel this year, if possible, let's hear the Lord Terry. And uh, I'd like to provide today a synopsis of the gospel and uh, its alleged presumed uh, author, uh, as a whole, in pre- preparation for doing that, actually, I sat down this week and read through uh, the gospel in its entirety in one setting and uh, just to get a feel uh, for what our writer wanted to get across in his primary theme. And uh, that's a practice I'd highly recommend uh, to any who could possibly find the time, actually, depending on how fast you read. You can do that in four or five hours pretty easily, actually. Uh So the Gospel of Luke is, uh, you may actually know, the first of a two-volume series written by Luke to include uh, the history of the early church uh, for us uh, recorded in the book of Acts. Well, Luke is a very special person in the Bible because, for one, he is the only person, as far as we know, who has actually written an entire book, was himself not of Jewish Yes, Luke was not a Jew, and yet he has written not one but two substantial books of the New Testament comprising close to a quarter, if not more than the entire, text of the New Testament. So Luke was very special in many ways. He was not only a Gentile who had accompanied Paul on some of his missionary trips uh, through Asia, Minor, Greece, uh, all the way to Rome in Italy and back again to Land of Israel, and so on that account, we can assume that he was, and we know from what he wrote that he was indeed a theologian of the first order, no question about that. Sitting at the seat of at the feet of Paul, I should say, for all that time would have been uh, an ed- education, uh, to say the least. Uh, but in addition to that, we know that uh, Luke was a physician. And not only was he a physician, but he was a first-rate historian. And not only was he an historian, but he was also a historiographical researcher who was himself probably fluent in several languages. Uh, in addition to Greek, uh, he was very competent in the mastery of Greek, Greek, as we well know, not only in the Greek point common poinoy uh, Greek language of the day, but also in the classical Greek as well, which was actually what he composed the first four verses of his um, gospel in, which was something that was keeping in uh, with the protocol for a uh, work of that nature, a historical narrative. In fact, the reasons for which we he chose to put in writing his gospel are stated right up front in those uh, very first verses was in order to give us a reliable account, Of that which was known to be the case about the teachings of the life of the death and resurrection of the Lord. In doing so, he's paid remarkable attention to the details that would have perhaps missed the eyes or ears of uh, any who had not been so thoroughly trained, not only in doing the type of research required for this task, but in the skills, for instance, of a physician who would know the right uh, diagnostic questions to uh, ask when interviewing a patient, or in this case, interviewing as he did many of the eyewitnesses. So Luke, who has apparently been commissioned by a certain certain benefactor, know, we know as uh, Theophilus, has given us this inestimable treasure that is such a, an integral and essential component of the canon of scripture, and which not only was written by a Gentile and from such a perspective, but was written to emphasize those things that would be important for establishing the faith of a Gentile believer or a potential Gentile believer, which I would assume I could have ventured to guess uh, is the case for most of us. He puts in perspective, for instance, the entire account of his gospel by framing it not merely from the time of Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, uh, but by tracing Christ's ancestry all the way back to Adam, the father of the entire human race. And When he does so, he does not just follow the patrilineal ancestry of Jesus' adopted earthly father, Joseph, as found in Matthew, but he gives us the lineage of Mary, his mother. <clears throat> He provides an intimate uh, portrayal of the immediate family background of Jesus, his parents, and his upbringing. Perhaps as important as what he includes is what he omits, and why? Whereas in the Matthew account, which mentions the arrival of the Magi, the slaughter of the infants in Bethlehem by Herod, and his parents' flight and sojourn in Egypt, Luke skips over all that stuff. Why not include it? He surely must have been aware of it, and I can only surmise that his intention was not simply to provide us with a comprehensive account of Jesus' life, but to have a volume which was meant to complement Matthew's version and to be set alongside of it. In other words, he, just as the other gospel writers and uh and Paul uh, knew, at the time that he was writing, was actually being overseen by the Holy and guided by the Holy Spirit, and was eventually to be included as part of the sacred scriptures. Matthew's account, which was had as its primary audience, the nation of Israel, and written from their perspective, portrays Jesus as the expected Messiah, focused much more on the incidents which for instance, revealed how he fulfilled the Old Testament scripture prophecies and was the new Moses and the one about whom Moses would write. Luke, on the other hand, was writing as writing to a primarily Gentile audience, saw Jesus not so much as the Messiah of Israel as he did as the Savior of the entire world, but also being aware of Matthew's gospel, he saw no need to simply reiterate what was already said in that. On the one hand, Matthew knew his audience already would have a tremendous amount of respect and reverence for the scriptures of the Old Testament. Luke, on the other hand, would believe part of his task would be to help instill in his readers just such a desire to learn about and to begin to understand and to see those texts as an important part of God's revelation of himself to mankind. And so also to begin to revere them as their own sacred scriptures. And he does this in part by including a a significant portion of the account of John the Baptist as such a fulfillment of those texts, for instance, in Isaiah. He's the only one, in fact, who gives uh, attention to the details of the questions that were being asked of John by the various groups of people who had come to see him. John the Baptist Ministry, by the way, incidentally, was one which at the time had gained a far wider ranging audience than Jesus ever had back then, certainly. And he was he was already very popular among the Gentiles and mentioned in all of the historians of the day, most of whom were at that time Gentiles. Even today, if you were to go to places like I have in Iraq, you will still, and I have, in fact, met. People who are their followers of John the Baptist, who have not yet become Christians. That's because they first heard about John, or when they heard about him, or saw him. They didn't stick around, apparently, long enough for the real Messiah to show up. And they never learned what John's ultimate mission was, which was simply to prepare the way for Jesus and to point people to Jesus. We have something like that in the New Testament that was also mentioned by Luke in his second volume of Acts chapter 19, where there were believers encountered by Paul way over in Ephesus, far, far away from where John's ministry was. And it was a little unclear at that time uh, of what, aside from the God of the Old Testament, these believers actually believed in, since they were just referred to there as being disciples, currently disciples of John but who knew only uh, his baptism, the baptism of John, until John clarified the matter for them. Later in Luke's account of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness by the devil, he shows him quoting the scriptures of the Old Testament in his defense. And then as he begins his ministry in his hometown, once again, Jesus quotes from the scriptures claiming uh, to be the one fulfilling them there in his hearing. Only in Luke do we see the details of the sermon Jesus preached in his hometown where the Jews found it so offensive because it revealed a God who appeared to show more concern for the Gentiles than he did actually for his own chosen people. And Matthew, who combines the teachings of Jesus into basically five uh, extended discourses. Uh, I could list them here as the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 through 7, uh, number 1. Number 2, uh, the early commissioning of the 12 apostles in chapter 10 uh, of Matthew, and number three, his teachings on the parable of the kingdom, chapter 13. And then four, more teachings about the church in chapter 18, and finally, the Olivet Discourse in chapters 23 through 25 on the coming judgment and the end of the age. Well, while each of these may have some correspondence in Luke's Gospel, where they do, they're of much shorter duration. And what Jesus was to have said in them are frequently spread out throughout the entire gospel, giving instead one saying at a time in a specific setting so you can see the context and get a little deeper understanding of the meaning behind that particular saying. So while Matthew is, again, trying to portray portray Jesus as a second Moses who was who had delivered? By the way, Moses also delivered five long speeches. He delivered the law, remember, initially in Exodus uh, 5 and following. And then after that, he had this long discussion on the tabernacle. And after that, he had a discussion on the priesthood and then the sac- on the sacrifices. And finally, his, uh, he had a repetition, uh, a second-generation repetition in Deuteronomy of, of the law. But at that time, it was accompanied by the addition of um, blessings and curses corresponding to the judgment. Luke's rendition of the Sermon, incidentally, while it's much shorter, uh, but it also includes the addition of not just the Beatitudes, but the woes, which has its parallel in those curses of the Covenant. Matthew's woes come later in the Gospel, not in the Sermon on the Mount, where the Beatitudes are, but also at the end of the Gospel in his Discourse on Judgment. And again, more in line with the format of Followed by Moses. Well, in addition to the unique unique style, we can say that apart from having Luke's gospel, we would never have known so many more details of the life and teaching of Christ, to include his 12 year old excursion, for instance, to the temple, or the initial miraculous catch of fish by Peter. And when Jesus uh, enticed Peter there to Uh, invite him to follow him with the enticement to that he would become a fisher of men. We would not know uh, anything about the raising of the uh, widow of Nain's son from the dead, nor of many of the numerous accounts of Jesus' specific encounters with women in particular. And over a dozen parables we would have heard nothing of, including the 99 sheep, the prodigal son, the good Samaritan, the rich man in Lazarus, the Pharisee and the tax collector up in the temple praying together, or the, those on the cost of discipleship. We would never have known about the story of Zacchaeus. And we would never have known about many of Jesus' miraculous healings and specific details about them, including those of the crippled women, the man with the droopsy, the cleansing of the 10 lepers. Nor would we have known about the commissioning of the 70 and their reports back to Jesus. Nor would we have known about Jesus' advice to them, not to rejoice in the fact that the demons were subject to them, but to rejoice in the fact that their names were written in heaven. We would never have known that Pilate had declared Jesus to be innocent, although I know in John's Gospel he said he didn't find any guilt in him. We would not have known about the trip that Jesus took from standing before Pilate to go over and stand before Herod and come back. We would not have known about the words of Jesus to the women on the Via Della Rosa, that is the path going up on the hill to to, uh, Golgotha. We wouldn't have known about the prayer while hanging from the cross, uh, uh, asking his father to forgive those who were presently in the process of mocking, scorning, and crucifying him at the time. Nor would we have known about the promise he made to the penitent thief on the cross to be with him in paradise we would not even have known about several of the resurrection appearances of Jesus including the one that he made uh, on the road to Ma- uh, Emmaus I believe and we would not have known about how he shown himself later that very day to the apostles and ate with them explained to them how the the whole Old Testament was written to show that Christ would, should suffer and on the third day rise again from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations in his name, beginning in Jerusalem. In other words, we would not have had the most important and crucial, crucial principle of hermeneutics for interpreting to us what the Bible uh, really means. When it's talking about these stories in the Bible. In other words, when we read about the story of Joseph in the book of Jesus being betrayed by his brethren, sold into slavery, falsely accused and imprisoned for many years, only to rise up miraculously at the end, to just about the highest position in the land, and by doing so to save the whole world from starving to death. That that was meant to be a picture of Jesus dying and rising again for the salvation of mankind from their sin. Or how when, for instance, the youthful David risked his life to defeat Goliath, to deliver his nation from the threats of the Philistines. That was meant to be a picture of how Jesus would actually give his life to defeat Satan and deliver the world from his oppression. We would not have known that when the three Hebrew children were thrown into the fiery furnace for refusing to bow to an idol and were protected by God, or when Daniel was put into the den of lions for praying to the one true God, and delivered miraculously from death. These were meant to be pictures of Christ suffering actual death in our behalf and then rising again victoriously over death for our justification. We would not have known that when a rebellious Jonah offers up his life to save the others on the boat from God's wrath being expressed at that time through the furious uh, tumultuous sea and which after he was cast into it, immediately became calm. That was meant to be but a picture of the peace brought to our own anxious hearts when we first choose to believe in the one who offered his life on the cross of God's wrath against sin. Did I say, did I startle you with that, God's wrath, you know, with that description? Because we often so think of it, the cross is that which brings us peace, which it surely does. But that's only because the fire of God's righteous wrath against sin had its, had first to be quenched upon that cross. And that could only happen when none less than the very Son of God bore the full brunt of that wrath in his own body as he hung and died there upon it. So these are just a few of the things for which we should be very grateful uh, to Luke for in his gospel. But let me just close by addressing the first four verses we find here in this gospel. Let me read them here. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all these, all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In other words, precisely what Luke was, by the grace of God and the power and guidance of the Holy Spirit, enabled to put into print here was simply and accurately an orderly account of objective and momentous historical events which occurred within the very recent past Of the writer. So that, for instance, today when we listen to all the criticisms of late, actually not necessarily so late, but ongoing criticisms, I should say, nonetheless, which attempt to undermine the authority uh, of the Gospels and the Word of God, in fact, by claiming that they consisted merely of oral legends which were passed around among followers of some popular folk hero named Jesus after his death, to honor him and which were embellished over time and then eventually finally put into writing, not then, but many generations later. And in the process, they were, you know, power, their institutionalized power in the church. Well, let me address that particular uh, criticism. That is exactly the opposite of what Luke is saying here. And what do we know of the extant copies of the gospel? Well, for instance, we have available to us today uh, in John Ryland's uh, library in Manchester, England, a fragment of the Gospel of John that was found in the last century, uh, early, if not the preceding, end of the preceding century, actually, uh, not far from a town known as Oxyrhynchus along the Nile in, in Egypt where we knew an early colony of Jewish uh, believers had lived during the first and second centuries. Well, the fragment was written in Koinoi Greek and dated to between 90 AD and uh, 130 AD. That date proves that this gospel, which was known to have been the last gospel uh, written, could very well have been written by the Apostle John himself. In fact, in order for sufficient copies of that gospel to have made their way down and circulated to the point that a random copy of one could be found so far south, uh, so far away from its original point of origin, would certainly indicate a first century date for its writing. That makes it all the more likely that the other gospels would have had to have been written that much earlier. As it was said here in this introduction, that firsthand witnesses would have been available to verify uh, uh, its testimony. You have to remember that at the time before, for instance, the printing press was available when copies had to be made by hand, the only real way for anyone to thoroughly document their work as being actual credible fact and truth is by providing first-hand account witnesses to the facts of the case. Hence, witnesses were of far greater importance to the verification of stories at that time being told than they are now. The only way anyone could know for sure when they would uh, then would be, since they were not able to check, you know, references and citations as we do now in a library, would be to consult personally with such witnesses if they really felt the need to do so. And that's precisely why these people have been given names and were, and uh, are told where, where they can be found. And that is precisely what we see Luke doing here and the other gospel writers doing as well throughout their accounts. Luke, of course, mentions as well those who were governing when their administrations began in relation to the events. He's narrating, narrating so that the facts can be checked and corroborated. So if anyone is interested, you know Zac- Zacchaeus, who was mentioned by name, was not hard to find. After all, he was the chief tax collector uh, there in the uh, area of Jerusalem. Of course, all the 12 apostles are mentioned by name, but since they might not be quite as easy to get in touch with, many others in these gospel accounts are also mentioned by name, for instance, Cleopas, the other disciple, or consider uh, Simon of Cyrene, the the fellow who was called to carry the cross of Jesus. Mark also, by the way, gives the name of his two sons, Alexander and Rufus, who probably weren't even there. But surely they could testify if they themselves were called upon to do so, as in a sense, uh, people who understood what happened. So we know that what whoever may claim these to be legends are making false claims. Not only that, but... As I mentioned, these four, first four voices were verses were written in a classical style of Greek, which was meant uh, to be the form that was taken whenever a historical narrative was to be presented. So, um, we know that whoever may claim these to have been written long after the events took place are also making false claims. These Gospels were all written well within the first century. In fact, these Gospels were all written down and copied well within the lifetimes of the actual firsthand account eyewitnesses who were actually available to corroborate them. And finally, whoever may claim that uh, these were written down for the express purpose of entrenching the power and authority of those in positions of authority, uh, uh, leadership in the church are also making bogus claims. And we know that because at the time these were actually written down to be a leader in the church then was not a highly sought after position. It meant you had to be willing to take a stand against the culture and against the customs and in many instances, highly esteemed traditions of the day. It was not a position that held much of any esteem or authority at all in the prevailing society. It was, as the apostles themselves describe their lives as of all people, those to be most pitied. Paul wrote that he thought God had put them on exhibition as apostles, as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because they have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to all men, as fools for Christ, held in contempt, hungering, thirsting, poorly dressed, buffeted, homeless, reviled, persecuted, slandered, like the scum of the world, the refuse, of all things, certainly to claim to have written down these things in order to seal their claim to power and authorities about as far from the truth as it's possible to be. Besides that, the Gospels never provide us with a very favorable picture of those in positions of, of leadership. If anything, they're made to look in it like a, a very motley crew, if not indeed a bunch of bumbling fools. But then, God has chosen just such a group to represent him for his own inscrutable purposes, one of which being to display his own wisdom and glory. Well, I hope I've been able to convince you that, if nothing else, this gospel of Luke is true. It is true indeed, and because it is true, what it has to say is of utmost importance for our ears to hear. Indeed, there is certainly nothing more important and if you have yet to respond to its truth there is nothing more urgent as well so do not delay in believing it for each moment you delay in doing so you are actually continuing to be deceived and to believe a lie and the longer you believe and there's many out, lies out there to believe so uh but the m- longer the more time you spend believing such lies the more of your life you are going to be wasting So if you value your life at all, you will choose to believe the truth. And if you desire to know as much of the truth as possible, we will be endeavoring to glean that for you in the coming weeks ahead. As we focus our minds on this gospel of Luke and what he has in it for us to see. So I invite you to join us in this journey. Let's take it together. Amen. Well, thank you again. This is Kim Nicolaitis. I'm going to be signing off now from Advent Christian Voices.